Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Successful horror novelists are not nearly so ubiquitous in the 2020s as they were in the 1970s through the 80s. Yes, there are some great ones. Paul Tremblay, Grady Hendrix, Adam Neville, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, Max Brooks, and others. But it is not a golden age for literary horror, where horror titles top the bestseller charts as often as not. Fewer people consume their popular culture on the page than on screen. But now, as ever, books and film and television still overlap. A handful of genre novelists became screenwriters, even directors, without ever giving up their day jobs. Richard Matheson's success came first in the publishing world, but when he adapted his own novel, The Shrinking Man, into the Incredible Shrinking Man screenplay, he set a new path. Though he kept writing books, his primary focus seemed to shift to teleplays and screenplays. Stephen King, of course, is the best-selling horror novelist of all time. His forays into screenwriting were met with great success. He wrote the scripts for Pet Cemetery, our miniseries of The Stand and The Shining, Sleepwalkers, and many other notable works, and led to his one attempt at directing a movie. Unfortunately, it was the ill-fated maximum overdrive, and he was never compelled to do it again. But he has always considered himself an author overall else, and continues to be as prolific, if not more so, than ever before. Clive Barker is another high-profile author who also ventured into screenwriting and directing. Though he directed more films than King, he too returned his attention to the books, always the books. Horror novels are cinematic just by their very nature, by peering into the depths of what scares us. Though they allow a depth unfathomable in the more external process of making movies, they provide a blueprint for bringing nightmares to the screen. Our guest, Grady Hendrix, who I first met at the Overlook Film Festival in New Orleans, is one of the modern masters of literary horror who has also turned screenwriter, though he too remains primarily committed to the written word. We will talk with him about his own personal history of horror right after this. Are you ready to look fear in the eye? Two-sentence horror stories, the award-winning horror anthology on The CW and Netflix, uses psychological horror to unwrap complex social issues, with each episode paying homage to a different subgenre of horror. Now you can dig deeper into the terror with Two-Sentence Horror Stories, the official podcast. Each week, the hosts give you an inside look into each episode, inviting guests to share behind-the-scenes details from production, as well as the social and cultural issues explored on the series. They meet with the diverse cast, directors, and writers behind the series, and the social activists tackling the important issues addressed in each episode. They also invite special guests from the horror community. This season's guests include Jeffrey Reddick, the creator of Final Destination, and the Radio Silence Guys, who directed the latest Scream movie, and many, many more. 
Listen to Two Sentence Horror Stories, the official podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to watch Season 3 of Two Sentence Horror Stories on the CW, CWTV.com, and stream Seasons 1 and 2 on Netflix, if you dare. So, Grady, welcome to the slab. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, you know, I I, uh, I can't wait for my Y-shaped incision on my chest and, <laughs> and for you to start weighing my lungs and my liver. <laughs> That's up after we finish the talk. So it can so, be an impeding so, conversation. So I got to ask you something off the bat because I've wanted to bug you about this for a really long time. Please do. You've directed how many scripts that Stephen King's written? Three, four? Um, I think, well, let's see. The Stand, The Shining, Walkers, um, uh, Desperation. I think those are the ones he's written. Um, yeah. But I've so, done, I think, eight or nine King uh, adaptations. Okay. But I was curious. So I read the screenplay of Creep Show a while back. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was so wild about it is that King's style is not standard screenplay style. At least in Creep Show, it wasn't. It's very conversational. It sounds like him. And yeah. the thing that I thought was nuts was that he spent, like, you, when you see the pages of the comic book that flip in the wind between the different segments in Creep Show, he would spend a page like writing on this page and across from it are the ads and the ads. Are, and it was like, it was great. I mean, it was so readable and so compulsive. And then you watch the movie and you literally see that page for less than a second as it flips <laughs> by. But he just seemed like he was having so much fun writing it and just being discursive. Is that how, was that just something he did because that was early on? Or is his screenplays, are they all sort of like, they sort of go where the mood takes him a little bit because his style was just so him and i would never see a screenwriter spend so much time sort of setting mood and atmosphere but having it be so much fun well i think it was a combination of two things i think he was new at it and i think it was that movie where it was a bunch of stories being told in the old ec manner before right. there was a tales from the crypt tv show or anything like that um because his work became more polished as a screenwriter. Uh, the first one I ever read was Sleepwalkers, which was still told that playfully, but a mm -hmm. little more in a standard format. But by the time he'd gotten to the screenplay of The Stand, that was one of the best scripts I had ever read. And it followed all of the rules as far as formatting and all. And it was, it was much more direct and not quite as conversational. And then Shining even more so. Um, I wouldn't say they were more formal, but they were right. more more polished in in that regard because the stand the the shining is one of the best screenplays I've ever read. It not just teleplay or horror that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I was just wait. And when you say it was the best screenplay, was it done as one or I mean it was several episodes, right? So it was like it was three it was three nights, but it was done in you know uh, three scripts basically, but all together as one. Then the stand oh, wow. was four. The stand was. 465 pages dropped on my porch one day. It was like, 
uh, I'll spend the rest of my life reading this. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Back in the day when people still had physical screenplays, they had brads through it, really yeah, long brads. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that you hope would catch in the uh, in the polyester pants of executives of the day. <laughs> so, well, tell me how it all began for you. What your interest was? There's very little. Um, historical information about your past. And I'd love oh, to know what life was like. Charleston, South Carolina, what an amazing atmospheric place to be from. Tell me what life was like and what led you into this interest in Nazi leprechauns and things. <laughs> Well, my interest in Nazi leprechauns, you know, my race hate and my love of Ireland coincide. Um, <laughs> you know, so Charleston's a weird place. I mean, it's a tourist town. And I think when you grow up in a tourist town, you develop this real idea that nothing's real, right? It's like you, this real, it becomes very clear that there's an outward face and an inward face. And outwardly, it's carriage tours and plantation homes and all this stuff and the museum and all that and the market downtown and the sweet grass baskets. But, you know, we all know it's 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 wicker mans and, and you know, <laughs> child sacrifice behind that. Um, but, yeah, I I wasn't a big horror kid, actually. I uh, I, I came across this. I think King was the first actually, you know, sorry, those Alfred Hitchcock treasuries that used to come out of horror. Um were the first things I encountered. And those anthological book collections of stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and those were great. And um, three investigators and stuff like that. But I was always bigger on sci-fi and fantasy and like men's adventure stuff. If someone was shooting someone, I was so there. And um, <laughs> my dad was a big World War II buff. Like the only books he's ever read are like hardcover nonfiction about World War II. And he reads them incessantly. Um, and it has to be hardcover. He just started reading paperback like 10 years ago. Really? Uh, and yes, but so, um, so that was me. And, and I read King like everyone does. I think it's unavoidable. And it's, you know, like 11, 12 years old. I think that's the gateway years when you discover Stephen King, you're like, oh my God, this is out there. Yeah. And, you know, finding like a couple of those old, I think they were Dell, those Dell Clive Barker books of blood paperback with the Halloween mask. Yeah. Like it was a beach house rental, you know, uh, and someone had left them behind. So that kind of stuff. But I really, my gateway into horror was really, I think a lot of people's, which is watching horror movies with your friends. Um, yeah, from the VHS era. Exactly, exactly. And I think there's something cool about that because you grow up thinking of horror as social. You know, it's fun and it's social. And I think there's always this image of horror nerds uh, like us as sort of like depraved loners in our basement, like polishing the rifle we're going to use to like, go gun people down in the town square. And I always think of horror nerds as like overly social, gregarious, outgoing people, because that's been my experience, you know, that like. Well, with conventions know, and film festivals, what yeah. other subgenre has that? Exactly. And, and also this, well, you know, it's funny, I, I see a lot of overlap in metal fans, like metalheads and horror people. I think like, I mean, obviously the imagery, things like that, there's that overlap. But I also think there's something about being a fan of something that people automatically think they have your number and you're sort of like, like, you know, saying you're, if you're really into some like really dank hip hop, like no matter how like disreputable it is it's still kind of cool 
Um, <laughs> but like, you know, being really into metal, being like into Cannibal Corpse or something, I don't know how many people think that's cool. That usually just makes people feel sad for you. And yeah. like, and it's so weird. And I think the same thing with horror. Like you say you love horror and people are like, oh, so you masturbate alone a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you know, like, like, you know, saying you like metal, people are like, oh, so you're dysfunctional and bag groceries. Like, I just think it's two right. genres that really, you know, and not so much now with horror, but really for a long time, like, oh, you're that guy. So I think with horror fans and metal fans, there's so much like one of us when you find people who like the same thing, like, man, right. you don't want to police the gates. You want to like, you like this, I like this. Like, have you ever seen this? Like, listen to this album. Uh, when I did We Sold Our Souls, which was my heavy metal horror novel, dude, I could not, I'm not a natural metal head. So I would just ask like metal heads at concerts and shows and stuff like, what should I be listening to? I just, just have cocktail napkin after cocktail napkin full of people like, oh no, this guy, this guy, this, this band, like this, like all they wanted was to share the stuff they loved, which is really nice. Yeah. It's interesting because when I was a kid, there weren't conventions and there weren't genre festivals. And it was very much a loner's genre. <laughs> there mm. were very few people, nobody I went to school with was interested in the universal classics or, or the four skulls of Jonathan Drake or things like that. <laughs> so it really took a while before I met other people who were interested. You know, I was the one kid who bought the famous monsters at the liquor store down at the corner next to Speedy Marno. It was, it yeah. was very much but wait, an isolated experience. But so when did you meet the, 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 the family, your cult, your people? I, you know, it didn't happen until really close to adulthood when, when I first went to conventions or, you know, started writing for magazines and the like. It, but it was really in, in early adulthood. I, I was not able to find those people in my teens. Um, yeah, it was so much more isolated, a, a celebration of, of this dark art. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's funny. I mean, just cause I've got King on the brain. Um, but you know, Mark Petrie in Salem's lot, who's the horror nerd. Yeah. That was the first time I felt like, Oh, I know who that guy is. Like, you yeah. know, even though I didn't yeah. consider myself sort of a horror nerd, I just consider myself a nerd. Um, <laughs> but like, I was like, oh, I get it. And it was the first time that was sort of like a heroic figure. And like all these things that make him a weirdo, the models and the books and the movies and all this gave him the skills he needed to survive. Um, exactly. Yeah. It was the revenge of the nerds. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting. I'm, I've been reading about... Um, have you read about these ghost shows that used to be like, they yes, were sort of in yes. the thirties and there was they just an article like, on Teller is a friend of mine and he recreated one uh, and did it uh, off Broadway and they filmed it as well. And it, it's really great. They were huge in the thirties. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. I was just reading this article because I got really into it. So I started reading all these academic articles about it or the few that are out there. And one of the interviews with someone was like, oh, you know, it sort of died out around the 50s because the kids started getting really aggressive. And they're like, and basically wow. they would see the ghosts, like when it would go to the blackout at the end of the spook show. So for people who know these ghost shows, they were like, they toured starting in the 30s to the 40s to the 50s. And it would usually be at midnight and it would be a live show in a movie theater followed by a film. And they would do lots of magic tricks. And so it was basically like the Alice Cooper show, uh, stage show without the music. Lots right. of good, sometimes they behead 
forces and everything. And then they would climax with the blackout when all the lights would go out and the crew that was doing the show would have these uh, phosphorescent painted ghosts everywhere and people wearing phosphorescent costumes and monster masks and they would terrorize the audience and everyone would scream and laugh and have a good time. And they said in the 50s, the kids would start like punching the ghosts in the face during the blackout. Like they would pop up and the kids would just be like, bang. And they were like, <laughs> our assistants were just getting like their noses broke. A lot. The day of the juvenile delinquent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, wow kids well tell me uh, you know you you did journalism but i'm i'm very curious about the american society for psychical research oh yeah so that was really so i i lived in hong kong for a little bit and i moved back to the u.s um in the in the late 90s my wife and i and um I was really, writing was kind of the only, I was, I was writing a lot because I had been doing a lot of theater and, and like little movie making stuff. And I realized that most of my time was involved getting people to show up and learn their lines. And I was like, what's, what's something I could do where I don't need anyone else? I could just do it by myself. And it was writing. And um, so I realized that I started writing for fan magazines and like early early online fandom for Asian movies, Hong Kong movies in particular, because I knew something about it. I lived there. So I was like, I had a tiny bit of knowledge. And um, I moved to New York. Uh, we moved back to New York. And um, I, I need a job because, you know, writing for Mobius Home Video Forum, which was free or like Asian <laughs> cult cinema did not pay anything. And right. um, there was a Craigslist ad for an office manager. And I went up and it was the American Society for Psychical Research which was a nonprofit founded in 1885 by William James and a bunch of other dudes to research claims of, of spiritualism, which was the big thing at the time. And um, they had this uh, a great townhouse with this library that was phenomenal across the street from the Dakota, you know, the, the home of Rosemary's baby. And um, oh, yeah. And John, yeah and, and John Lennon getting shot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and living there also. Um, and um so I was the office manager. So I'd answer the phone and do stuff like that. I was there for three, four or five years, something like that. And I spent a lot of time in the archive and you'd have free time doing archival projects. But the interesting crossover is, you know, Dan Aykroyd and his dad, his brother were all members. And actually Dan had been a big supporter of it. And he actually, the first draft of Ghostbusters he wrote, which was a very different movie than what it ended up, but was really based on the ASPR and sort of like, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, because it is funny to be doing this job that's very workaday. You're filling subscriptions, you're answering the phone, you're doing this stuff. And it's people asking you about ghosts and energy vampires and, you know, poltergeists and stuff like that. There is this weird bifurcation that occurs. But it was a great place because I had a fantastic boss. She was really, really smart and um, just sort of taught me a lot about listening to people and not getting all judgy or thinking I knew what they were going to say. And and really paying attention to what people said because people would want to vent. They'd want to get some, they'd want help with something. And, and I couldn't do much, but listen. And um, so it was a really interesting place. And it also gave me this real love for the spiritualist movement in the 19th century, which was phenomenal. I mean, it was this place where, where the suffrage movement and the abolition movement and the labor movement all overlapped and women started like really taking these public roles, these leadership roles as these mediums and all this. And everyone gets really hung up on the question of, well, were they faking it or not? That's like, who cares? That is the least interesting question here. Yeah. The fact that like Maggie and Kate Fox 
who sort of really started this movement were an 11 and a 14 year old kid with, with basically fourth grade educations, third grade educations, living in upstate New York. And they went on to be two of the most famous women in the world who wound up dying basically penniless in their, I think their forties. I mean, that's an incredible story. Who yeah. cares if it was fake or not? Like, you know, you've got people like Dee Dee Home, this medium who was like the David Bowie. He was this thin, white, good looking, like, and I always say white, like pale, 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 right. good looking guy and very sickly and very sort of ethereal. And he would do these sittings in broad daylight where people like important people with public reputations of landed, you know, people with titled aristocracy in England or, or rich society people in New York would, would see him in full light, levitate out a second story window, fly around this house and levitate back in the other window at the other end of the room. Now, could he fly? I doubt it. (laughs) But the thing that's interesting to me about this, this guy was like maybe one of the great, working magicians of the 19th century who lived his illusion. You know, that's fascinating to me. Um, and he convinced people. What, a, what an amazing job yeah. for, you to ha- for an aspiring author to have five years in a psychical research facility. Yeah. Oh, it's phenomenal. It was really great. And, and that was around the time too, when I was doing more and more freelance writing and started doing that. And then that wound up becoming more of a full-time job. And um, there was a there was a brief period in the like mid 2000s and you can make a really good living as a freelance cultural journalist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doing interviews and movie reviews and book reviews and things. And then 2008, man, that 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 crash. Well, you were a film critic for a while um, at the New York Sun and various yeah. other places. So um, did that inspire you or or further encourage previous thoughts of becoming a filmmaker or, or being involved in film in some way? It had sort of the weird effect of um, two good things came out of it. And one is that, well, no, a good thing and a bad thing came out of it. Uh, the, the good thing is that um, someone said to me early on when I started, they, they it was sort of cheating, but they, were, they basically said, you know, no one cares about the sandwiches in the green room. And it was sort of their way of saying to me, like a lot of times when you review a movie, you're reviewing the apparatus around, oh, this publicist was so annoying. And like, you know, and they really treated me like garbage here and all that. This is just a podunk thing. Uh, So you go in looking at this movie as if it's a secondhand effort. When the publicity effort and the publicist and the marketing have nothing to do with the film. And the other thing someone said to me, which really has stood me in good stead all my life was, just because you like something, it doesn't make it good. And just because something's <laughs> good, it doesn't mean you're going to like it. And I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Like, I don't like many Stanley Kubrick movies, but they are objectively great movies. Um, you know, there are a lot of movies I like that I know aren't good movies, but I love them for reasons I can articulate at length. Um, but like, it's important to me to keep those things separate in my head. Um, but the bad part about reviewing movies is that it makes you think you can do it. Ah. <laughs> and and reviewing a movie has nothing to do with making a movie. And now that I'm a little more involved with the filmmaking process, man, I wouldn't review a movie in a million years. Like it's just yeah. so unfair to the filmmakers. 
Yeah, I, I began as a journalist doing music journalism and then film journalism myself, as well as being a singer in a band and, and making movies eventually too. And the reason I found value in that was that I was able to meet and interview people who inspired me. Yes. No, that was a huge, that was a really good thing. I got to tell you, there was so amazing to meet like Roger Corman and just be like, he's, he was a billion years old, dressed so sharp, a razor sharp with his, and I'm sure his stories, he told them a million times before, but he made it seem like this was the first time he gave you all his attention. And I, the dude was such a gentleman. I could not get over what just like and a, a kind guy he was. And there were other people like that where it's just like, whoa, really? Like that was, that was a great part of the job. Yeah. When you meet someone who's generous with their time and with their thoughts and with their process, it's an amazing experience, which is why I do this podcast. Yeah. I'm so fortunate to be able to talk to people who, whose work I admire, but talking about liking or not liking something that is qualitatively good or bad <laughs> <laughs> My introduction to your work was Paperbacks from Hell. That was the first book of yours that I read before I went back to Horror Store and my best, my, uh, best friend's exorcism and those things. So tell me about that. That's an exhaustive work overlooking the trashy, wonderful <laughs> paperback horror novels of the 70s and 80s where you know people like James Herbert uh, you know, and his books like yeah. and things like that. I mean, these were superstars of trash horror. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny. Ignorance was my friend on that because the reason I wrote that book is I had just started doing these, um, these posts. I, I, I was writing horror, essentially. And I'd go into these paperback swap shops and see these huge horror sections. I didn't know who Barry Wood was or Elizabeth Ingstrom. I didn't know why they were 4,000 copies of the Omen 3 novelization. Like I didn't, <laughs> this stuff didn't make sense, but I was like, this stuff must make sense somehow. And I just started reading the books at random and writing about them for tour. And <clears throat> I needed the money. I mean, it's 25 bucks a post. It was, it was, you know, do four of those a month and that's grocery money. So my editor at Quirk at the time was like, you know, I don't think we buy a book that was these columns you've been doing for tour, but I kind of like to read the pitch. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. And I did it. And he's like, okay, we bought it. And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> and it was a book. I was on contract for another novel. And so I had to fit it in between my best friend's exorcism and my next book, We Sold Our Souls. So I, I had a 10-month window to do it. And I had to read a ton. I read 300 and something books uh, wow. during that period, which was actually the right way to do it. Like I, I would have to read by genre. And so it'd be like, okay, I'm reading all medical thrillers. And it really taught you or taught me what the signposts were, what the tropes were, because I'm reading them all back to back. And I also got Will Erickson involved, who is the only person I could find writing about this stuff online, his blog, Too Much Horror Fiction, He'd been carrying the torch for these books for a long time. And Will was great because I could sit there because it took us about, I would say it took us about six weeks of going back and forth on the phone, having these weird conversations like, so Nazi leprechauns, are they an anomaly? Are there other leprechauns? What about, what about where serial killers comes into this? How does that fit in with scary house? And just these ridiculous, what about killer dogs? And these ridiculous conversations about how this, what the story was, was there a beginning, a middle and an end? And there was, 
I just hadn't lived it. So I didn't know it. You know, I, I hadn't read these books naturally as a kid. So it was so much fun to do. And there are so many writers I stumbled across, like my life would be poor without, you know, Barry Wood and Elizabeth Ingstrom and Joan Sampson and Ken Green's Hall And I mean, Graham Masterton and all these people, I just yeah. never would have read otherwise. And, um, and it gave me a real tolerance for, you know, stuff I didn't like. Cause I was like, I got to read it. It's 497 pages. I got to read it. <laughs> um, and I had to see the joy. And I also was really interesting to, to realize how much writing has changed. And this is probably something you've seen as well. Cause like when I was reading your, your story, uh, these evil things we do, right. Yeah. Your story collection, you know, your writing is so, I don't want to say old fashioned cause that sounds like an insult, but like, it's very novelistic. It's very, it's very, I don't know how to describe it, but it's writing that isn't super genre. And you read writing, I feel like I read some writing now where it's like so familiar with the genre. There's a lot of shorthand that goes on because the writer knows the genre. He knows their readers are going to know the genre. And so there's a real trading on tropes that happens and sort of subverting them or executing or whatever. But like your stuff feels much more like a lot of these books out of the 80s where, or the better ones, where there was less dependence on the tropes. And it was more like, this is a character. And we're going to talk about this character and this character oh. goes here. But you know what I mean? It was less like less of the shorthand. And I, I really appreciate that. And reading these books, like, oh, I, no, no, of course. I mean, it was something I really like Graham Masterton, as much as I love him, dude, he's trading on tropes from the word go. And sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but you read someone like a, a Barry Wood or, or your stuff or, or Stephen King. And it's like, the goal here is realist fiction that happens to be in the horror arena. Right. Right. Well, you journeyed into that arena early on. I mean, first of all, let's talk about Dirt Candy before we get into your horror. Because <laughs> that sounds like a one of a kind book that I have yet to experience. It's out of print now. So, oh, is it really? Oh, I, I've read that it was out of print, but I will. Whoa, if not, getting on I that. Will. No, it might be. I got to get on that yeah. with our publisher. Um, no, so my wife is a chef and there is yeah. nothing that will give you a work ethic like being married to a chef or involved with a chef because it's like they come home like with scars and burns all over them at one in the morning <laughs> and you're sitting on the couch reading a paperback and they're like, how is your day? And you're like, my fingers hurt. I've been typing. <laughs> um, you know, it's really, they live an intense life. So you kind of feel like you got to do that um, to, to match them. Um, and my wife's, my wife owned a place called dirt candy, which was all vegetables, like candy from the dirt. And she also wanted a name that was pretty aggressive and people couldn't forget. And, um, you know, when there's a restaurant in the family, it really eats your life. And the original dirt candy was 400 square feet, including the kitchen and the storage nice. and all the tables. <laughs> uh, it was, it was pretty intense. And, um, she got all these offers to do a cookbook and really didn't want to. It's like, does the world need another book? of pretty photographs of vegetables and recipes. And she and I were talking one day, we were kind of arguing. And one of us, she claims it was her, I claim it was me, was like, you know, the only reason to do this is to do something really stupid, like a comic book cookbook. And then we were like, oh my God, that's a great idea. So then we did that. And um, so, and it was really fun to do. We didn't kill each other, which was nice. <laughs> um, and it was really fun to do nonfiction graphic novels are so great the format is so suited to nonfiction, and um 
it was so much fun to do. And um, so, yeah, and so that was a blast. And, and doing it, uh, we met Ryan Dunlevy, who does Action Philosophers with Fred Van Linty, and who is the artist on it. And, and Ryan's great. We've worked on some other projects together, but I met him by, by calling him up and being like, well, we're looking for an artist like you, but cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> And then I realized he was basically willing to work for peanuts. So I was like, oh, you are cheap. Um, but uh, it was an awkward introduction. Yeah. It, but uh, horror stores seemed to change the course of your life. Um, oh, yeah. Here, here was this great horror novel that connected with an audience. Um, it's kind of Ikea goes to hell. Tell me a little bit about yeah. where that came from. Well, so that was really, I mean, Jason Rakulik, who's my editor at the time at Cork, was was really the mastermind with that. Like, he sought me out. He, a friend of mine's um, wife, was interviewing for a job at Quirk. And he was like, oh, you know, what authors are you, would you bring over here? And she named a few. She named me and some other people. And so she didn't get the job. And then he called me. He's like, do you have anything to send me? And of course, I had like a couple of novels that had never gone anywhere and all that stuff, you know, dozens of screenplays and everywhere. So I sent him a novel. It's a haunted house book. And he really hated it. But he liked my <laughs> writing. And he liked the fact that I was trying to subvert, uh, do, a, do a new version of a haunted house book. And so we got to talking. He, he really wanted to do a haunted house book and, and about like work and, and retail and big box retail. And we were like, oh God, Ikea would be the perfect place. The room layouts, all that stuff. And so he's like, yeah. And it would be like an Ikea catalog. And we were off the race. And it took us it took me a couple of rounds to figure out a book that we thought would work. Like I was like, what about this? And he's like, eh, and we got there. And then writing that was so much fun because I were, I got to work really closely with Jason and with the art director. And I was sort of like, what if we did this? What if we put a piece of furniture at the beginning of each thing and then we did the catalog copy? And what if they got more, you know, crazy? We just got to play with the book as it went and everyone just kept plussing it and making it better. Uh, Jason would have an idea to like, oh, we got to do the front material. And I'd be like, well, I'm going to write it because I'd written catalog copy, like the fine print and stuff before. So we could play with it. And then Andy would lay it out and we'd be like, oh, what if we did this also and had like an order form in there? So that was so much fun to do. And the lucky thing, and Jason, I don't think realized this either at the time, but the lucky thing is that that book sold really, really well. And it sold in so many foreign territories. I mean, I got more money out of Germany on that money than that book than I did out of the States. But the reason was because everyone in the world speaks Ikea. Everyone knows <laughs> Ikea. They know what it is. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, Germany has like 50 something Ikeas. And so when I did my best friend's exorcism, I was like, oh yeah, we're going to sell 18 foreign territories. Or that. It's not like two. Because like it's, uh, uh, it's about two women set in the South in the 80s, you know, like Germany doesn't want that. They want Ikea. <laughs> and so it was so lucky that that book did that well and had that cultural cachet with Ikea. Um, that was such a stroke of luck. And, uh, and, and, you know, it was, it was a good, it was a good thing to have early on. Didn't Fox option it with a plan to turn it into a series? Yeah, it was going to be turned into a series. Um, Gail Berman, who, uh, was the Fox executive who developed Buffy and all that. Like, you know, she was involved with it. Um, uh, Josh Schwartz, who did Gossip Girl, was involved with it. I mean, a lot of really smart people really banged their heads on that script, trying to turn it into a TV series. And it just, it, it never worked. You know what I mean? It, they never got yeah. it to a place where they felt like, 
it was working. And so now it's going to be a feature film. And I'm actually, oh, great. yeah, the director hasn't been announced. We're actually working on a new draft of the script right now. And congratulations. Uh, thanks. Well, I got to say, there's nothing like writing a screenplay of one of your books to be like, yeah, someone needs to take this author to the woodshed. Who wrote this book? <laughs> Who, who's responsible for this mess? You get to fix all that shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's hard, man. Screenplays and books are so radically different. Uh, yeah. And that's not a newsflash to anyone, but I've just had that rubbed, my face rubbed in that fact. It's just, it's hard Ooh. to get over how different it is. Yeah. With your own, especially, you know, then you, you have the freedom to say, this part sucks. I'm going to change. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And also it's just like screenplays are so unforgiving. Like it has to work a book. You can like, you can, you can make things work in a book. You can do some character, but you can do things with the book. Not that the book's bad, but like you can sell something in a book in a way. Screenplays are just too harsh, too many. They're too unforgiving. Yeah. And too many people involved in the process. Yeah. You got to convince everyone. It's got to go through a lot of hands. Well, when it comes to uh, my best friend's exorcism, that was the first of your novels that I read. And um, what's kind of interesting is how your books mostly sound like they're spoofs from their titles. They sound right. like they're, they're send-ups or they're comedies, but they are not. They, you have a sense of humor as an author, and there is a sense of humor, but My Bet Exorcism takes its horror very seriously, and it's not a comedy book. And, you know, with the same thing with the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. That sounds like a, a horror romp, you know? But <laughs> as fun as it is, these are not horror comedies. Yeah. Well, I also feel like, you know, it's funny. It's one of those things in movies where it's like horror comedy kind of became a genre. And I also feel like, you know, I find, I find Evil Dead 2 a very bleak movie in the end. He, I mean, it's funny, but I feel like it's hilarious. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. But I also feel like it takes its conceit seriously, which gets ridiculous, but also scary. You know, Return of the Living Dead, people call a horror comedy. That is a bleak movie man um but it is very funny and i think that's life like it's really funny and really horrible at the same time Um, whistling past the graveyard yeah exactly and so yeah so i'm I'm happy you're saying i never think my books are funny until someone says they're funny i'm like oh yeah yeah, i meant them to be funny like i take it really seriously which you know i kind of have to to pull it off um well that was striking to me because i'd had the book recommended to me and the title, My Best Friend's Exorcism, sounds like a CW series to me. Right. You know? yeah. and, and so it's like, I don't know. And then I sat down and, well, it's Grady Hendrix, the guy who did Paperbacks from Hell. And it blew me away. And it's, I'd love to make a movie out of that. that. That's such a great book. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. No, and it's, it's, um, it's really, yeah, it's funny when people talk about it being funny. I'm glad, like, I'm glad people have a fun time with it and enjoy it. But like, man, I take that book so seriously. It's almost embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but, but it's also, um, I also feel like uh, one of the things I kind of learned from my wife with her restaurant is like, you need a title people are going to remember because there are a lot of titles yeah. out there. There are a lot of names for restaurants. There's a lot of titles of books. And you got to have something to remember, people remember. And so Best Friends Exorcism and Final Girl Support Group are the two books I have where the title came first. And I uh-huh. always appreciated that Roger Corman thing where he'd have a title <laughs> and then get a movie around it. Because you really do, you, 
the title is so much. It's what kept me oriented. There were so many times in Best Friends Exorcism where I think, where the hell am I? I've gone down this path and I don't know where I am anymore or the way out of this book. It's like, okay, back to the title. That's my North Star. Best friends, that's going to keep me oriented and remind me what this book is about and that everything else that's not about a best friend and an exorcism can go. Well, let's talk about your process. I see on the wall behind you note cards that are taped up all over. Yeah. Uh, so do you seriously outline before you sit down? Do you do you beat it out in note cards? Um, do you do a first draft, just page one and start writing? Or uh, what is your process? It's been a little different every time. And honestly, what usually happens is this, that I'll have a pretty good idea of what I want to write. And I'll often outline it and I'll start and that book begins to die at a certain point. And usually around the two thirds mark, it just doesn't have enough gas in the tank. It's getting lifeless. And I just keep going. I push through to the end and I'm shoving in all the stuff from the outline that I want to get in there and I'm getting it all in there. And it's just garbage. And I usually sort of go back to the beginning and try to figure out where it went wrong. And then I'll usually just start writing again. And about towards the end of that, it kind of dies again. And then I'll sit down and like really do a treatment for it. And then I go for it. And what I usually find happens with that third draft is everything starts coming out. All the cool stuff I wanted to get in there, all the neat scenes, all that stuff I thought was so important. And what really happens is it just boils down to the character and giving them time to breathe and relax and react to things and, and really get inside their head and go. And usually that usually what happens is I'm overthinking things and I'm coming up with too much and it's trying to pack too much incident into it. And I, I kind of suffocate the characters. And so most of it's pruning back all that stuff. And it takes me a while. Um, the book I'm doing right now for next summer, I turned in a draft in October, a radically different draft in December. And then I just spent the first 18, 15 days of this year writing a third draft because it's late. I don't like to do it so quickly, but like, and that was the process again. I'm just like, I keep doing the same thing. You think I could start with draft three. Yeah. I mean, I, a book or a movie or a screenplay comes to life when you're writing the character. I mean, it's mostly about the character more than it's about the plot and events. Absolutely. And that's the thing I really had to learn. Um, you know, and it's funny when I was a kid, <clears throat> I wanted a story. You know, when I was a kid, I'd look at something like Rear Window or Psycho or something and be like, but nothing happens. He's looking <laughs> out the window. He sees the yeah. guy. And, you know, it's only as I got older, I was like, oh, it's about these characters. And that's what's interesting and keeps you watching. Big things don't have to happen, but they have to seem big to the people they're happening to. Um, and, you know, now I watch Psycho. And, and, you know, when I was a kid, I'm like, Janet Lee and Norman Bates and Anthony Perkins are having dinner together. And I'm checking my watch. Now <laughs> that scene, I think, is so epic and amazing and, and incredible. Um, but yeah, giving those characters time to breathe and really react to things, um, it's, it's what it's all about. And it's, I just wish I could remember that when I wrote the first draft. <laughs> well, who are your influences, both literary influences and cinematic influences? Man, I, you know, it's hard because they change so much. Like um, 
with every book, it really, really changes. So usually with each book, I have some kind of like spirit animal who's like my author that I'm reading a lot of their stuff and I'm, I'm really sticking with them a lot. So with my best friend's exorcism, weirdly enough, it was uh, Chuck Palahniuk um, with oh, Southern wow. Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vam. Well, Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk does a really interesting thing with a lot of like on the body sensation. Like his writing is really physical and about how things feel. Um, yeah. And I really tried to do that a lot with Best Friends Exorcism. Um, with Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, it was Shirley Jackson. Just Oh, that's interesting. Well, it yeah. also has roots in, in your roots in the South. Yeah. The, you know, tell me about how that setting charged the plot that you pursued. Yeah, well, one of the things with a book is you stick with it for a long time. Like, you just live with it for a while. Like you do short stories, which I have nothing but admiration for because I'm terrible at short stories. <laughs> I really like moving in and like, you know, letting my hair down and hanging around for a while. Yeah. Um, it's like, I just moved in. I have to move again. Um, yeah. And so I, I've often said, I've set three books now in South Carolina in the neighborhood I grew up in around the time period I was growing up because I find that very comfortable and very nostalgic and I, I know it. Um, I enjoy being there. And I also sort of know the ins and outs. And with Southern Book Club, one of the things that was interesting to me was how much there was a, a split in the world that like the moms and kids saw and then the world that dads saw and how the neighborhood just so changed when dads were home and how different it was when they weren't. And just, it was two different universes almost. And that to me was so weird and fascinating. And so that's sort of a lot of where that book came from. And with my best friend's exorcism, a lot of that was going to high school. And I think a lot of people feel this way, but just feeling so scared of everything all the time and feeling like adults were kind of your enemy. Um, they didn't seem to have your best interest in mind. They, they didn't listen to you. You know, they didn't hear what you had to say. And, and I don't know if that was uniquely Southern or everyone could relate to that, but that's how it felt to me. Um, it felt very uniquely Southern to me as a, a Los Angeles native myself. I, yeah. I felt uh, the foreignness of it in a, in a very <laughs> specific way. But it was interesting, the difference between those two books is the generation of the characters at, at the center of them. You know, one is a CW world and one is more mature than that. Yeah. And, you also set supernatural events in a very, very real world, identifiable world uh, uh, location, very much in the way that Stephen King does, but without calling to mind Stephen King. You have oh, a very thanks. specific style of your own that is a rare thing to find in any author, but particularly within the genre. Oh, I really appreciate it. It's funny, when I was just doing this new draft of this book that's coming out uh, next summer called How to Sell a Haunted House, I actually went back and reread that big chunk of it where the adults all meet in the, the Chinese restaurant. And yeah. I was like, you know, one of the hardest things about writing, I find, is just basic blocking. People sitting around a table, walking across, and getting people in and out of rooms. Like, how do you do that stuff and make it sound interesting and keep? And so I was just reading that scene in that one room to be like, and it's it's really interesting to see how simply it can be done, but the simplicity is deceptive, like really deceptive. Um, and so it was interesting to see that. But I think that um, 
the big difference to me between Best Friends Exorcism and Southern Book Club are Best Friends Exorcism is about teenage friendship and right. that burns so hot and then it's gone. I mean, I'm, I'm my best friends from high school. I didn't talk to some of them for 20 years after high school, yeah. but I needed that intense thing. Then adult relationships, I've got people I'm friends with where I'm like, I don't know if I like them that much, but we're really good <laughs> friends. But I feel like as an adult, it burns a little lower, but they're there in a lot more intense situation. When you're a teenager, yes, you go through intense stuff and your friends get you through it. But as an adult, you're dealing with divorce, with, with kids, with kids dying and getting sick, with your parents getting older, all this. And that's the stuff adult friends are there for. And they're the ones who sort of go to the mat for you in ways that, would a teenager is just not capable of. And I feel like there's an agreement you have with friends as an adult that it's, it's kind of like as a teenager, if my best friend didn't like the same band I liked, that was an issue. <laughs> as an adult, I feel like, you know, you put up with my bullshit and I'll put up with your bullshit. You know, like, like yep. you sort of had this tacit agreement that you'll just put up with whatever because we're friends and that's what's happened. And it's a forgiving relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you kind of know in the good friendships that when the chips are down, they're going to be there for you. You, They're the person who's going to sit in the hospital with you. They're the person who's going to come to the funeral home. They're the person who's going to say, okay, you go do what you need to do. And I'll be at your house in 20 minutes. I'll lock up and feed the cat. Like, you know, they're the person who's going to say, you need, you need 500 bucks. Here you go. Pay me back when you can. Like they're going to be there for you. Um, yeah. But you know, it's a, uh, it's a very different re- friendship. Yeah. Do you do a lot of research? Tons, tons. Um, I-, I like research, like being a journalist. That was my favorite. Like you were saying earlier about interviewing my favorite thing is talking to people who do something I have no clue about. Um, and so I love doing research. I often, uh, one of the things I, I really am bummed out about is I thought my next book was going to be set in a hospital. And so when I was doing book events recently, um, you know, a lot of people would, would drop, oh, I work in a hospital. I'd be like, what do you do? What do you, okay. Yeah. Give me, give me your email. And I had this whole chunk of people I was going to use for research for this, but, uh, I well that my publisher's like, I don't just, I just don't think people want to read a hospital book right this minute, uh, which is, which is fair. They, they probably are right. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I love doing research. I love interviewing people. I love going down the rabbit hole. It's so much fun. And you still do nonfiction uh, work, you know? Yeah. With these fist break bricks with this Kung Fu book. That harkens back to your uh, Hong Kong days, right? Absolutely. And I did it with this guy, Chris Pajali, who's an amazing researcher and writer. And like, we just went down some, some weird bunny holes, man. Um, <laughs> but it was so much fun to do those interviews and, and do that research. But also even with the fiction, like, um, you know, I've got a friend who I, I'm like texting, like, you know, I've got a five-year-old in this new book. I'm like, okay, how strong is a five-year-old? Like in a tantrum, what damage can a five-year-old do? Um, you know, like, like, you know, there's a scene where a character's pregnant, but doesn't know they're pregnant. I'm like, okay, when did you know you were pregnant? Like, at what point, what did it feel like? And, and I just like doing stuff like that. I like digging up the Girl Scout handbook from 1986 and looking at what it says about tourniquets. Like, that's, I feel like the more real it feels to people, the more real it feels to me, the more real it feels to the reader. And so when we step off the ledge together, they're going to go, they're going to trust me. 
And you're, you moved into screenwriting, or at least produced screenwriting with Ted Gagan, and you uh, did the yeah. screenplay for Mohawk, which he directed. Tell me about that experience of finally seeing one of your screenplays get to the screen. Dude, I don't know if you feel this way, but horrifying. Like Ted had to, <laughs> Ted basically had to put a gun to my head and be like, you're going to sit there and you're going to watch it in a the theater. Like with, when we showed it to the casting crew, Mohawk, and he like, you know, you're going to watch a cut of this because I didn't want to, man. I'm, I'm embarrassed. And it's oh. so hard to watch people say your dialogue. But dude, watching Mohawk, the two times I watched it was worth four years of film school to see what works, to see what doesn't, to see what tricks worked and didn't. Um, and, and with Satanic Panic, my movie I did after that, Chelsea, uh, the director, she was like, don't, come on, man, don't be a dick. Come watch the movie. And I was like, yeah, Ugh. Chelsea's been on the too. So yeah, to no, talk Chelsea's about great. Film, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and it was so educational. And the two things I realized, the one thing I realized watching both those movies is the time, I mean, as many gags and set pieces and cool bits and all this stuff as I put in those movies where people leaned forward, where I could sense the audience like leaning in was when it's two characters talking to each other. And, and the more disparate the two characters point of view or what they want is, the more interested and invested the audience was. But we're weird monkeys, man. We want to see other monkeys that look like us talking to monkeys like that's <laughs> what's interesting that's the most interesting thing to us you know um it and so it's really it's really taught me a lot to be like okay that's what people want people want to see people being people even if it's in extraordinary circumstances you have the unique experience of also interacting with people because you're a public speaker as well tell me about that part of your professional life yeah. So when I did Horror Store, um, you have to go out on the road and promote what you're doing, right? And I realized that author events where I read for the book and do a Q&A, man, they didn't just make me want to kill myself. They made everyone in the audience want to kill themselves. <laughs> and and I was like, I got to do something more. And so I started experimenting with my best friend's exercise. I bought this like cardinal outfit. There was this get up and would go out and do these these weird, like I didn't really know what I was doing. And, um, you know, these kind of like services about exorcisms, I don't know. Um, and then with Paperbacks from Hell, I was like, I'm doing a one person show. It's me and a couple of hundred slides and I'm gonna sing. And this is a show about the history of horror paperbacks. And people really liked it. And so I did one for We Sold Our Souls about like, you know, the history of heavy metal and horror and put in personal stuff and slides. and. Uh, Southern Book Club, I was going to do one, but then pandemic. Um, and so I wound up turning that into a podcast, uh, the research I'd done for that. And, and usually what happens is I'll write the book and then dive into the research before I do the show. So when I did Southern Book Club, I read Dracula and a book called Vampire in Europe, and then a bunch of other, you know, true crime books and women's fiction stuff and all that. But like, those are the only two vampire books. So after I did it to prepare for doing this show about vampires, I read dozens and dozens and dozens of vampire books and movies. And then of course, pandemic, and I didn't have anywhere to put all that stuff. So podcast. So, so Final super Girl, support, scary, haunted uh, homeschool. Haunted right? homeschool, exactly. And, um, and and podcasts are harder. I don't know if you know this, but they're harder than I thought <laughs> they were going to be. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I did it for Final Girls and I'm going to do a haunted house one for how to sell a haunted house. But I love doing it, man. It's so much fun. And it's 
It's fun to do a show. It's fun to be talking to people. People like it because they learn something, but it's also goofy and entertaining. And they they move fast as an hour. It's not that painful. Um, yeah. I, I try to do it in places where people can be drunk at the same time because I think they, <laughs> I think my performance gets better the more they drink. Um, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, so I and I love doing that. It's one of the fun things about writing books is going out and meeting the people who read them. I like being out there. I like hearing people's stories. I like talking to people. So it's nice sort of for that to start coming back post pandemic. Do you have an interest in directing? It's too hard, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see what directors go through and I'm like, you have to really <laughs> want to do that. Yeah. And I'm amazed when people direct more than one movie. I'm like, you did that again? Is it like having a baby and you just forget how painful it is? Like, it's, it's amazing <laughs> to me that people do that. It is, it looks, it looks like the worst job on the planet. I like writing. I like writing it and working out those problems. And then all that other stuff, like losing the light and this actor is just not getting it. And the, where's this prop? Why isn't this? Like, that's a man that like, that's where it is. But I, Dude, that looks, my eyes start to melt when I see people doing that. <laughs> Who are the filmmakers that most excite you, uh, that you watch anything they've done? You know, for me right now, gosh, it's a lot of the older ones, to be honest. Um, people who are like, um, I'll tell you, one of the guys that I really uh, just will see anything he's done, Chris LaMartina is who did the WNUF Halloween special. Man, I will watch anything he did. He, the stuff he puts together on these budgets just blows my mind. Mm. Um, I don't see a lot of recent movies, unfortunately. Like once I stopped going to film festivals a whole lot when I was, when I was working on them, I, I mostly read now because that's sort of what I have to do for work. Um, right. So that's really- like, And who are the authors? Answers. Who are the oh, authors? Yeah, authors right now. I, I mean, kind of interrupted. We uh, we changed horses a little bit when we were talking about the people who influenced you, but uh, but that can kind of blend into who inspires you. Yeah. Well, in terms of nonfiction, two people I will do. I will read anything they put out, no matter how far afield it is. Uh, Scott Poole, um, who writes nonfiction, he's out of the college Charleston. He did a book called Wasteland about World War One and its impact on horror that oh. changed my life. It's incredible. He did a great book on Lovecraft. It's like a really nice, successful Lovecraft book. He did a great book on the history of Satan in America, a great uh, vampi uh, vampir vampira um, uh, biography. He's wow. phenomenal. And then the other one's Kayla Janice. Uh, anything oh, yeah. she writes, I'm there for. I mean, her areas of interest are like, I'm always like, yeah, that's cool, whatever it is you're working on. And then I wind up reading it and I'm like, oh Genetic. yeah, of course I'm fascinated by this. Um, and, and you saw her folk horror documentary, right? I, yeah. I actually bought the, that giant nine the billion box movie yeah. box set. And Beautiful. it was, it's my treat once I finish this rewrite, which I just finished. So starting this weekend, the first thing I'm doing tomorrow night is watching that documentary and working through that box set. Um, I am so unreasonably excited um, in sort of an almost like, creepy way um <laughs> and then in terms of fiction you know there's so many authors that i don't know their stuff as well as i want to so it's um you know i, I just 
finished reading all the Barry Woods books, which are amazing. I'm trying a lot more uh, uh, Graham Masterton right now. Um, I'm trying to think of contemporary. Gus Moreno, I just read his new book, which I really, really liked a lot. Um, uh, Oh gosh, uh, what was it called? Hold on, I'm drawing a blank. Um, This Thing Between Us, which was really a lot of fun um, and weird, a lot weirder than I thought it was gonna be. and then, you know, there are people I know where I read their books, but like, it's, it's you know, like like Stephen Graham Jones and Paul Tremblay and Alma Katsu and Sarah Langan. Right. Like, I love all their stuff and I keep up with it. But like, you know, I keep up, I feel like we're all having this sort of like ongoing conversation where we just pass around our books. Um, and, and of course right. I'm reading it. Um, but yeah, so right now I'm about to go down the rabbit hole because I've got another book due real soon on the back of one I just finished. So it's all it's all going to be folk horror for the next couple of months. Wow! And if you had no deadlines, and just considering what you want to do next, just sitting down, what you want with no editorial influence or whatever, would that be in the world of horror? And in what direction? Yeah. Well, there's two projects, and and they're they're both horror related. Um, and one is and one is happening, and one I hope will happen. And the one that's happening is um, I, I wanted to write a novel set in, in the world of nineteenth century spiritualists for a really, really long time. And it's very, very hard to convince editors to let you do that because although all my books are period, they're set in the eighties and the nineties and the mid two thousand. I mean, and so they're really a lot of yeah, yeah. And so a lot of lot of a lot of editors see that and they're like dude, it's going to be about dead people. This is, this is, you know, Downton Abbey territory, like people, (laughs) and they're worried, but that after my next book, that is going to be my book. And I'm really terrified because all I can do is screw this up. Um, (laughs) uh, I have, uh, I have a feeling that you have one of the highest batting averages out there. So I, uh, I have (laughs) no, I don't share your fear. I just look forward to it. I really appreciate that. But like, dude, I, panic over this stuff um and satanic panic yeah exactly and then the other project that i'm dying to do is doing the podcast was so much fun and so rewarding like it was i don't know if this is how you feel about yours but like man i loved it and and well we're in our sixth season and if i didn't love it i wouldn't be doing it (laughs) yeah it's so gratifying and um you know, two of the episodes of that, I did one about uh, about Dracula and Final Girls and Mina Harker and one about World War One and, and the Universal Dracula that are two of my favorite things I've ever done just to work on it and just be like, wow, like I did that. Like I'm so, and so I really want to get the podcast going again. And the problem is I did it all by myself, which anyone who's listened to the technical quality of it can attest to. So I've been <laughs> desperately looking for a sound engineer who'll come on board for this because it's, I'm really been looking for someone who wants to work together because I did a lot of sound engineering and editing and stuff. And so I want to sort of sit there together and, and have the flexibility to be like, oh, wait, we're doing, let's change it and have this thing move. And, you know, that's not the way a lot of sound engineers like to work. They, they've got a production flow they like, and they've got a real, and that's how they work. It would be like someone coming in and trying to tell me how to write a book. And so it's been very hard to find someone who's like, hey, yeah, let's, let's give it a whirl. Um, and so I'm, I'm dying to do that because I got to say, like, 
I did a lot of audio stuff. It, I went to NYU and um, I, one of my teachers who I loved was an old refugee from the BBC radio drama department. And his idea of audio drama was, you know, like, like BBC radio plays. And it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, very tweet. But I worked with him for years and, and did all that stuff at all analog so i was like cutting on quarter inch tape with a razor blade <laughs> and a grease pencil and you want to loop something that. you're holding a pencil with the loop on it across the room and it was a blast and i've always loved audio and it's so exciting to see it coming back and i think there's so much room to do to get beyond where people are now i'm not saying like people suck and they're just a bunch of basic bitches and i could do it better but i mean it's mean like like to get, we're, we're here, we're, we're in the golden age of television, Rod, Sir, early Rod Serling, Patty Chayefsky era of podcast. And I can't wait to get to the seventies and the eighty and beyond, you know, with podcasts and that sort of audio format. I think it's going to be nothing but amazing. I can't wait to hear what you come up with. So Grady, <laughs> there's so much more we can talk about and I hope we can do it again. And thank you for joining us on the, uh, on the slab here. Uh, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.